This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. If you want to find a mountain caribou, you look at a map and pick the spots you think the mosquitoes are going to be the worst. And that's where you go. Dave Moskowitz is a professional wildlife tracker and conservationist. He's known for his skills finding rare forest animals and likes a good challenge. Setting out on a canoe trip on a uh, large lake system in the uh, North Caribou Mountains in the interior of British Columbia. We're going to canoe a ways and then uh, hike up above the trees and go see if we can't find some mountain caribou. This is from a documentary Dave made called Last Stand, The Vanishing Caribou Rainforest. Mountain caribou have become somewhat of an obsession for him. He was drawn towards documenting them and understanding the unique ecology of how these animals have evolved to survive. It's very different from other ungulates or hooved mammals that live in the forest. Yeah, so this is going to be our base camp for the next couple nights. And um, while where we are is, is home and refuge to one of the, the largest remaining herds of mountain caribou, they're still really challenging to find. They make a living um, living in places where not many other things like to go. So in a sense, it's like trying to find a needle in a haystack. Mountain caribou evolved during the coldest time in Earth's history, the Pleistocene, about one and a half million years ago, and forests are their home, ancient, old-growth forests. The harsh conditions of these mountain forests make them an inaccessible ecological treasure. The southern caribou are found in one place, between Canada's Pacific coastal mountains of British Columbia and the Rocky Mountains. Most temperate rainforests in the world are found on the coasts, so it's rare to find a rainforest in the interior of a continent like this. Here in the Pacific Northwest is the last place on Earth where we have an inland temperate rainforest that's still intact. And mountain caribou have adapted to this very, very unique uh, ecosystem. This unique ecosystem runs several hundred miles north to south through the heart of British Columbia mountain caribou country and the deeper Dave got the more urgent the story became you went for an adventure then and and kind of did you feel like you found something else did it trigger something in you yeah absolutely I mean I I thought it was going to be like literally I was I thought it was gonna be a fun adventure and I realized like wow this is a a profound conservation issue that has in and of itself it's a story about caribou in this rainforest but when you really start digging into it, you realize like, wow, this is just such a parable for the issues that we're dealing with in the 21st century. It's a parable about one of the toughest but most endangered mammals on earth and Dave's passion for saving them. From KURW in Seattle, I'm Chris Morgan. Welcome to the wild.
see here, I've got the tracks again. There's some nice ones back in the mud back there. I'm sure this is a uh, caribou round, almost horse-shaped. Each discovered track brings Dave Moskowitz closer to his goal to see and photograph mountain caribou. I mean, it was like grueling, like I, you know, just trying to track down these animals that make their living trying to hide from you in very steep, very, you know, thick terrain was fascinating. When you picture a caribou, you're probably thinking open tundra and huge herds of animals moving across the land. Those are Arctic caribou. What we're talking about are mountain caribou, much further south. The way they migrate is different. So the migrations that mountain caribou do are actually up and down the mountains. Uh, so in the, in the course of just a few miles, they can kind of ecologically traverse you know, something like similar to, you know, hundreds right, of right. miles. Like crumpling up the tundra into a mountain range and they're still doing it, but it's not on level ground anymore. Eh? Right. The mountain caribou has become a forest specialist, so much so that over time they've evolved into a rare subspecies with little in common with their Arctic cousins. And they do an odd thing, something you don't see much in the ungulate world. Most mammals head for lower elevations in the winter, where it isn't as snowy and the conditions aren't as rough, but not the mountain caribou. They actually migrate up to higher elevations in the winter. They evolve this different migration pattern because of one thing, lichen. Lichen is a strange organism, a pair of organisms actually, a mix between an algae and a fungus. There are thousands of species of them, but it's, it's those that drape from the trees, often called witch's hair, that the mountain caribou love. In fact, it's pretty much the only thing they eat. Lichen isn't a particularly nutritious food source, which is why I think a lot of other animals don't deal with it. But caribou can survive off of it and have evolved to, you know, thrive in places where lichens are one of the most abundant things you can find to eat. And that has led them to evolve into this sort of reversed migration pattern. And so they found a way to survive in this really unique ecosystem where no other, none of their competitors can make it work. So they basically historically had that landscape to themselves. Dave knows firsthand that time spent in the mountains in the winter is no easy way to make a living. Dave's specialty is tracking wildlife, often in very harsh conditions. But caribou stretch him to his limits. You know, one trip that we did up there to look for mountain caribou, we spent a week basically stuck in a tent with a um, atmospheric river storm that came through and just dumped feet of wet snow. Like our tent was collapsing, we were soaking wet. I was trying to keep my camera equipment from just being destroyed and we couldn't even go out the door to look for caribou and I was thinking like wow these guys are just out there sitting under a tree somewhere and getting up every once in a while and eating lichen. But all that snow can actually be a really good thing for caribou. When they go up to the subalpine they'll actually use the snow as kind of an elevator to bring them up into the trees where they can eat the lichens off of the trees. So as the snowpack gets higher in the winter they'll be up there eating the lichens off of it and then actually when the snowpack comes down, they actually have to leave the high country and go back down to low elevation. There's a major downside to a lichen diet, as you can imagine, not a lot of calories. So the caribou live off an extremely tight energy budget. So that means that they have a lower reproductive rate because it takes them more time to produce enough energy to make a, you know, make more caribou. And 
It also means that they have to be very careful about how they spend their energy, especially in the winter, because they don't have a lot of high calorie foods to replace the energy they spend. It might seem like a disadvantage not having access to high calorie foods, but there's a reason they live this way. It keeps them safe from predators. A wolf isn't going to waste energy hunting down a caribou in deep snow high up in the mountains when there's a deer or a moose that's easy picking down in the valley bottom. This is actually a pretty smart strategy. It's called survival by avoidance, and they've survived this way for millennia. So that's the historical way that these animals evolved, and because they use every stitch of this landscape from valley bottom to mountaintop, they're just connected to this landscape in the same way a polar bear is to the you know, the, Ar- the edge of the Arctic Ocean or sage grouse are to the sagebrush sea or pronghorn are to open landscapes. It's just, you can't have one without the other. These caribou can't survive without all of the elements of this ecosystem working. Dave was learning all about how mountain caribou make a living during this time out in the field. But actually seeing them was a different story. Who would have thought an animal whose entire life strategy is based on avoidance might be hard to find? After 19 days of searching for caribou and living in the backcountry, Dave finally got his first glimpse. I got just a brief glimpse at first light. We came across each other as I was uh, cruising through the area. The caribou locked eyes with Dave, perhaps as surprised to see him as Dave was to see the caribou. Oh, snap, check it. He reached for his camera quietly and carefully raised it to his eye and took his first photographs of a mountain caribou. It was an incredible moment. Yes! After a minute of sizing each other up, the caribou slowly wandered off, disappearing into the forest. On that first trip, five years ago, Dave spent over a month out in the field and he saw only three caribou for a total of about 15 minutes. Dave started doing more trips, going deeper into caribou habitat, oftentimes on really remote forest roads. And more often than he would like, he saw something that disturbed him. And I'd be driving up these roads, and the mountain caribou habitat was coming down the roads on log trucks. Clear cuts. This jewel of a rainforest was being systematically removed. So there's old growth cedar trees just coming down the road. As I'm going up past signs saying, watch out, you know, wildlife corridor, caribou. And this logging of age old forest is creating a domino effect in the ecosystem. It's actually altering the balance between predators and prey. And the mountain caribou are right in the middle of it. More on that after the break. At SoundSide, we bring you news and conversation rooted in the Pacific Northwest. Hi, I'm Libby Denkman. I think of my job hosting SoundSide as number one asking tough questions of powerful people, the questions you KUOW listeners want answered. And two, bringing you a daily slice of the fascinating, confounding, and often goofy side of life in Washington State. Join me for SoundSide at noon and 8 p.m. on KUOW or anytime on the SoundSide podcast.
The basic principles of forest management in British Columbia can be stated simply. Harvest trees for the maximum long-term benefit to the forest industry and the people of the province. Large-scale logging started in Canada after World War II, and as this 1980s promotional video from the logging industry argues, is the basis for all revenues from the forest. But in many parts of BC, and especially in the coastal region, much of the easily accessible timber has been cut. Now it's time to extend and improve access to new areas. Meaning the old-growth forests that the caribou call home. After a century of industrial logging, nobody is quite sure how much of it remains, but a recent estimate from researchers at the University of Victoria suggests that as little as 5% of the province's forests are still old growth. It's amazing that we're still logging old growth forests in the 21st century, but what's even more amazing is that some of these old growth forests are literally being turned into toilet paper. All of this logging is having a ripple effect on the caribou population. This habitat loss is actually affecting that survival by avoidance strategy that has been serving the caribou so well. Caribou prefer the dense, highly vegetated terrain of the old growth forest. Lots of lichen there. But after a logging crew comes through and cuts down trees, the terrain becomes much more open a place for different vegetation. It's now full of new, smaller plants and trees, and this is the food preferred by deer, moose, and elk. So those ungulates are now making their way into forests that were solely the home of the caribou. And that's where the problem arises, because wherever the deer, moose, and elk go, the wolves, cougars, and bears follow. This has brought a major change to a life with predators that the caribou are facing. And that's not because of anything in terms of a new predator uh, or vast changes in the behavior of predators. It has to do with how humans have destroyed their, their refuge habitat for caribou. What do you mean by that? I think of these old growth forests and these roadless mountains as kind of a, a castle or a fortress and the mountain caribou were safe inside of there. And humans have just been systematically tearing down the walls of this fortress. And so when the predators get into this landscape, all of a sudden caribou become like just an easy meal, right? Caribou never developed the instinct to run from a predator. They didn't need to. Remember, their strategy was to just avoid them altogether in the high country. It's actually evolutionary advantageous for them not to flee because they're conserving energy. That's their biggest threat. And so, but if there are predators now in that landscape and you don't run away immediately, you're going to get eaten. So that's a big problem. They're just not, they didn't grow up. They didn't evolve in a landscape with as much predators as they have now because of the habitat changes humans have caused. The trees and snow used to keep caribou away from predators, but things have changed for the caribou now that there are more predators around. Usually, Mother Nature has a way of dealing with overpredation, a method of population control. In ecology, these are called predator-prey dynamics. If the population of a prey species, like deer and moose, goes up, the population of predators will go up because there's plenty of food. But if the predator population gets too big, 
They'll eat more deer, more prey, than is sustainable, which makes the prey population go down. And then the predator population goes down too. This way, things just naturally stay in check. A natural series of ups and downs. But what happens when you add more players or different situations into the mix? The other thing that's such a sticky wicket about this is that no matter how many caribou, wolves and, and mountain lions and bears eat, their population won't go down. The population of wolves, mountain lions and bears. These predators are tied to the deer and moose populations. They're all wrapped together in the same predator-prey dynamic. But the caribou are outside of this. If they were tied to the predators, then when the caribou population fell, so would the number of predators. Things would balance out and the caribou would start to recover. But when the predator is tied to a different prey species, right, then the caribou uh, can keep going down and down and down. In this predator-prey dynamic, caribou numbers just plummet. The wolves that have come up here to eat the deer are now also eating the caribou. What is being done to try and curb that problem? Yeah, well, so in the long term, what needs to be done is to allow these forests to return to late successional stages, to old growth forest, because then the deer and moose and elk populations will start dropping naturally and the predator populations will drop and then the caribou will have their fortress back. How long does that take? About a century. And so in the short term, there's many populations of caribou that just will not survive if humans don't do some sort of interventions. There are so few caribou, the loss of every one of them can be disastrous for the population. So until the forest matures and the old predator-prey dynamics are restored, dramatic measures are needed to save the caribou. One intervention is to kill wolves and other predators that are eating the caribou. This move by the Canadian government is a very controversial measure, but the government argues it's necessary to keep the caribou from extinction. But conflicting studies put the effectiveness of this culling in doubt, and it opens up a huge ethical debate, of course. Killing one species to save another? Most southern mountain caribou herds in Canada are now down to a few dozen animals or less. The largest are only a couple hundred. In total, there are fewer than 1,200 animals left. That's it. It's a race against time for the people working to save them. Some think the outlook is not good. Climate change is also looming. Less snow means more predators are able to access the high country, and a forest without a snowy platform for caribou makes foraging lichen in the trees very difficult for them. And there's a sad lesson to be learned from south of the border, in the USA. A constant reminder of what could happen in Canada. In northern Idaho, a place where Dave also tracked and photographed caribou, years of hard work to save a small transboundary herd had ended with authorities taking desperate action. They had captured the last two females, or three females, and translocated them to a herd further north because they just decided that they had just written off this last herd that goes back and forth across the border. They called them the Grey Ghosts. One of them was the last mountain caribou in the lower 48 states. They became extinct here in 2019. 
How did that feel getting that news? Uh, it was kind of predictable. You know, as a scientist, I'm like, well, I've been looking at, I've been studying this herd that was down to, you know, it was 20 animals, 15 animals, 12 animals. You can see the writing on the wall. So you're kind of like, oh, well, there it is, as predicted. Um, but as a human, it was pretty crushing. Like the first places that I ever found tracks of mountain caribou, like there are no more caribou there. I mean, there's signs up on the highway to watch out for caribou, you know, right on the US Canadian border and like the caribou are gone. The loss of mountain caribou tells us something. This is an ecosystem on the edge of collapse. Out of all the environmental and conservation work that Dave has done, this, what's happening to the mountain caribou, is the most depressing for him. I'd come back from trips up there and like, I'd be like, I just want a drink. And this is not like a normal thing for me, but I was like, I just want to get drunk. And I was like, I was like, oh, it's because this story is so troubling. The caribou were there for us and now we need to be there for the caribou. This is Roland Wilson. He's the chief of the West Moberly First Nations tribe. His emotions run deep about the caribou. The elders said they were like bugs on the landscape. They were just thick, they were everywhere. And if we ever needed meat, we could always go to the mountains, we could always get a caribou, they were always there. Nowadays, that's not the way it is. And uh, that's how we wound up in this situation where we're running a recovery program for the caribou. That recovery program in Canada had to take some dramatic steps. In other words, another intervention. Remember, we're down to about 20 caribou at this point. So the tribe created what's known as a maternal pen for the caribou. They started capturing some of the pregnant females in the late winter with the help of a helicopter. Then they put him into a giant enclosure, the maternal pen, many, many acres in size, so that they can give birth in safety and away from the predators. The pinch point for survival of more caribou is pregnant females and young calves. They're the most vulnerable to predation. If you want to save a population, that's where you should focus your recovery efforts. In understanding all of that, we have to get involved if we want to have caribou here. You know, and caribou were a part of our, our our existence. They helped us, and they're they're in need of help. And it's our responsibility as if we're if we're going to call ourselves stewards of the land. It's our responsibility to to do this, mm. right? And our elders have said do this. Our community has said do this. In the pen, females are safe. The calves are born there, and there's no predation. Mom and calf stay there together for a couple of months, and once the baby gets big enough the new family is released back into the wild. And we've taken a herd that was around 20 animals. And this is our third year running the program, and we're up over 60 caribou now. Progress is slow, but Roland has the perspective of the elders in his mind. Their knowledge of the past brings the future sharply into focus. We've been here 10,000 years. We're not going anywhere. Right? We're going to be here long after the province is done raping and pillaging the resources out of this land, and we're the ones that are going to be here cleaning up the mess that they've made. Caribou is historically a sustainable food source for the West Moberly tribe. Best estimates say there need to be about 3,000 caribou back here before the tribe can start sustainably hunting them again. 60 to 3,000. That's a long way to go, but Roland is determined to get there. 
I haven't shot a caribou. I probably won't shoot a caribou in my lifetime here. But I hope my grandchildren can. Right? I hope they can have the honor of experiencing what caribou are. The penning programs are a good start, but really it's just throwing a band-aid on something without really going to the source of the problem. Dave Moskowitz says we need to look at the bigger solutions that can help all these threats to the caribou. He wants the public and lawmakers to completely reimagine the Endangered Species Act. The reality of it is, that's a 20th century piece of legislation that was designed to resolve issues from the 20th century. And we've got a whole new century on us. And like our understanding of conservation science is totally changed. And we don't just have endangered species, we have endangered ecosystems. Dave wants to see the passage of an Endangered Ecosystem Act. It's pretty much impossible to take one species by itself and do something to keep it alive uh, in any kind of holistic way without addressing the landscape in which it lives. And the issues with mountain caribou are perfect because it's not an issue with the animal itself, it's an issue with the ecosystem. What good are protections for an animal if the trees that the animal needs to survive are not protected? This is a story that's been told in other places, where an ecosystem was lost along with all the animals, old trees and forests that used to be there. And this is a place where it doesn't have to be that story. This is a place where it could be, we almost lost this place, but we didn't. This is a place where still every large mammal that was there at the end of the ice age is still there, where there are vast tracts of primeval forest, and we still have the chance to keep it that way. Unless there is change, you know, we're gonna lose the caribou. And if that disappears, how much longer before we disappear? I'd like to thank David Moskowitz and Colin Arisman for letting us use some of the audio from their documentary, Last Stand, The Vanishing Caribou Rainforest. There's a link to the film on our website, thewildpod.org, along with Dave's book, which is called Caribou Rainforest, From Heartbreak to Hope. Also, thanks to Joe Scott from Conservation Northwest and Hugh Robinson for their help on this episode. The Wild is inspired not just by nature, but by people who work in it, love it, protect it. You can learn more at thewildpod.org. Be sure to check out our Instagram account, at thewildpod, and you can find me at Chris Morgan Wildlife. A very special thank you for their kind financial support to Jill and Scott Walker, Rose Letwin, Ellen Ferguson, Anna Kimball, John Taylor, Mark and Rebecca Wilkins, Bob Yellowlees, and Paul Lister. The Wild is a production of KURW in Seattle and me, Chris Morgan, with support from Wildlife Media. Our producer is Matt Martin. Jim Gates is our editor. Our production team includes David Brown, Juan Pablo Chiquiza, April Craig, Kara McDermott, Tio Popescu, Darcy Riggins-Schmidt, and Brendan Sweeney. Our theme music is by Michael Parker. I'm your host, Chris Morgan. 
Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoy The Wild, please do ask your friends to follow our podcast and maybe give us a review. Thank you and take good care. Hey, my name's Claire McGrain, and I'm a producer for Seattle Now, KUOW's local news podcast. There is a lot happening in our region, and it's a lot of work to keep track of it all. We'll get you caught up on the latest news and take a deep dive into something happening around the city, all in under 15 minutes. Get a morning walk-in or grab a cup of coffee and start your day with us. Learn something new and connect with our city by searching for Seattle Now wherever you get your podcasts.